Please pray with me. Lord God, I pray that my speech and my message will not be in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that our faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Good morning. It is great to be with you, as always. It's been uh, almost a year since I was with you, and it is always a joy to come and see uh, the newness and the renewal and the different images and the different look. I mean, uh, every, every time we come, uh, there's just new, new ways in which beauty uh, is being expressed. So it's great to be with you. And I'm so glad Sally is with us uh, as well. It's wonderful for me to not travel alone. Hallelujah. 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 Um, I am so thankful for our life together, for our relationship, and the growing, solid impact of this church for the gospel in Harrisonburg and throughout the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, we love you, we pray for you, and uh, it's wonderful to walk together. I have not been with you since we officially became the Diocese of Christ Our Hope in the Anglican Church in North America. We've had that name for about a year. Uh, one year ago, in fact, this week, we were sitting, uh, sitting with a young 20-something guy, uh, one of our clergymen who is working in Rwanda. We were sitting in a coffee shop in Kigali, and uh, he proposed that something about hope should be in our name. We're going, what do, we, what do we name this thing? The Church of Rwanda had just decided that it was time for us to no longer be a missionary district of Rwanda, but to be a diocese in the Anglican Church in North America. And so he just sort of waxed eloquent. He said, Bishop Steve, the world is pretty dark and discouraging. You know, you look around as, from my vantage point, and you see you know, the crisis with the environment and politics and terrorism and conflict and the fear of finding a job and the stresses of our world. And our culture, especially our generation, really needs to understand that there is a message of hope in Jesus Christ. It needs that message to be carried into the world and to be lived in the world and to be spoken in the world. And then he went on to say, and I thought this was pretty, pretty good, uh, I, I, it stuck with me. He said, Bishop, I, I don't fear Satan. The most he can do, the best shot he has is to destroy. And yeah, that's a hard thing to go through if it happens to you, but that's his best shot. And after he had done his worst, after he'd done his worst of destruction, Jesus got up from the grave and just shook it off. You know, he said, it, 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 and, the, and the new creation swallowed up the, that destruction. And Christ is the first fruits and the promise of, of our future. I, had, I don't have anything to fear. But we need to be people who live like that in the world and who speak that hope in the world. And that image just stuck with us. I brought that home to our team as we were praying through our name. And we spent about a month wrestling with it and thinking about it. And we uh, were led to declare or to decide that our name is a diocese. Our, our whole gathering of churches up and down the East Coast are called the, the Diocese of Christ Our Hope. And so for a year, I've been thinking a great deal about hope, and specifically the hope we have in Christ. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to start with some general comments about hope. Let me just kind of give you the outline, and then I'm going to briefly share uh, a little bit how hope works, and then we'll look at some of the content of our hope in Christ. So some general comments, how hope actually works, and then some of the content. General comments are this. I want to, I want to focus on some images of hope. You, as a church, are familiar with the power of images. You use images a lot in your worship to bring you and to touch you in different ways. And God uh, is very, very strong in terms of images in the Scripture and stories in the Scripture. And the readings today, we have two very vivid pictures. One is an actual image 
of two possible lives, that's Psalm 36, and the other is an example of two possible lives, and that's Luke chapter 13. First, the image. Psalm 36 starts with a picture of a man curled up in his bed uh, in the darkness. You don't know whether it's day or night, you just know it's darkness, because day and night are both the same for this guy. Uh, the darkness is within him, and it, he carries it with him. He's alone, he's in, on his bed, and he's twisting and turning and thinking vile thoughts and congratulating himself on his capacity for evil. He is presuming that God, if there is a God, is too indifferent to really um, be concerned about him. And so nothing's going to stand in the way of his self-aggrandizement at the expense of others. He loves himself. He hates others. He's happy to use others to promote himself. And even if it's nothing more than for the pleasure, the sheer pleasure of devouring other people. It is a dramatic picture of a singularly wicked person. St. Augustine coined the phrase, incurvatus in se, curved in on oneself. And in our modern world, we talk frequently about narcissism, right? And it's truly the natural orientation of every human being that is not delivered from self by a power greater than self. Humanity has this almost insatiable capacity to live for self, for using everything and everybody to fulfill oneself. It is really another way of talking about our fundamental sinfulness as people, our rebellion against God. We want to be on the throne, right? We want to be in charge of our lives. And it's from that desire to be God that everything else flows. And it's the source, really, of the woes that beset our world. We have baptized in our world personal desire as the ultimate good. Nothing should stand in the way of your ability for, to fulfill your personal desire. So the concept of a life where you check your personal desires at the throne of God, or even for the good of other people, is a very foreign concept in our world. We have also determined that unrestricted personal freedom and rights are the greatest gift that our pol political system can give to people. So nothing should restrict me from doing what I want to do. Personal desire, personal freedom. That's what drives our world and defines our world. And you can see the anger that happens in our world when anybody tries to stand in your way, right? So I just have a question. Look around. How's that working for you? <laughs> you know, how's that working for our world? I mean, it's a difficult world to live in right now. It's, it, is, it is frightening and, uh, if you just look at the world. How's it working for us to be unleashed in our personal desires? That's what this book guy is about in Psalm 36. But in verse 5 of Psalm 36, the scene shifts to an alternative world. It's really a God-dominated world. Humanity is off-center stage in the second scene. And we stand off looking at God. God is the center of the conversation. God's righteousness, God's justice, God's glory, God's beauty. The vista is there. It's expansive, full of light, and it's joyful, and it's blessed. Look at it. Read it. It's, it, it's, it's marvelous. We're standing up. We're no longer in curvatus and say, right? We're not curved in on ourselves on the bed. We're standing up. We're looking around. We're looking out, and we're looking together. So there's community as well, as we center our hearts on worship. Humanity is finding its true humanity at, in relationship to the worship and glory of God. And my friends, this is a picture 
of what Christ brings us. This is our hope. This is our hope to be fully human, to be fully human together, to flourish within the beauty and the true freedom that God gives us through Jesus Christ, standing upright, literally becoming human. As we worship God in faith, hope, and love, it's what Christ has come to do, to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the image we have in Psalm 36. Let it sink in. The second picture I want to give you, this general's comments about hope, is from Luke chapter 13, which is an actual example of a person who is delivered from incurvatus in say to a life of hope. And the scene uh, is a woman who's been bent over for 18 years. She can't straighten herself. Literally, physically, she is incurvatus in say, bent over upon herself, right? And so she is curved in on herself, not because, contrast to the guy in Psalm 36, it's not because of her own choices. It's because she is a victim. She's a victim of Satan and the world that he wants to give us, so to speak, the destroyer. She's broken by virtue of her humanity. She's a sinner. And she's a sinner like all of us are. We're born in it. We live in it. And she embodies in the flesh where we are by natural birth. And Jesus sees her. She doesn't ask for anything, right? In his compassion, he moves into her world in mercy and grace. And out of his compassion and grace, he delivers her. He loves her. He dignifies her. He sets her free. Folks, this is pure gospel, right? This is what Christ comes to do. And even before we know how to ask, he's moving into our bentness so that we can stand upright and start to see the world apart from simply ourselves. And this story declares by action and by human example the hope that Christ came to bring. So these two scenes, I just want to, by way of introduction, give you a picture of what Christ is here to do in our lives and in our world, the hope that God offers us freely in Jesus Christ. And I do pray that as we sort of dive into the conversation about hope, that just those scenes can be embedded in your soul and my soul and spur us on in our lives and as agents of the gospel. What's hope about? Now, secondly, how does hope work? You are familiar with the trinity of gifts that God gives us in Christ, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love are what the Christian life is meant to be. We are people of faith. We are people of hope. We are people of love. I find it pretty difficult, and I'm not sure it's all that profitable, to sharply distinguish between these three markers of discipleship because they flow so logically into one another. And you'll find out that as you pursue a life of faith in Jesus Christ, Hope is there alongside you, and as you walk in hope, uh, love is there, and as you love, then, you, then hope and, and faith, and even in Romans 5, it says that if we walk in faith and endure in faith, it births hope in us and those kinds of things. But if I had to push a distinction, particularly between faith and hope, it would be this. Faith of hope, uh, faith, of course, is our belief. It's the fixed, in the fixed realities of what God has done, of who he is, his promises. This is who he is, so I believe him. This is what he's done, so I believe it. This is what he's promised, so I believe it. But as soon as I start to talk about that, all of those 
actions of God, all of those gifts of God, all those things he's done for us in Christ, of course all of his promises have future implications, right? So faith lifts our eyes and our souls to a reality that is actually beyond our present experience. That there is a fulfillment for what has been done. So it's already been done for us, but there's a future fulfillment. So we often talk about our salvation as being past, finished, present, now, and future. And it is all three of those things. So we have faith in the finished work of Christ. That's how we live today, but it also points us to the future. So faith and hope really work in tandem. But specifically, how does hope work? And I want you to think about this. I've been pondering this for a while, and maybe this will be helpful to you. Faith bleeds the future back into our present. Now, I, I, I travel a lot, and, uh, and over the times, from time to time, I've you know, picked up a shirt here in India or a shirt here in Africa, a T-shirt, and it's usually red or bright or whatever, you know, and I forget to tell Sally about it, and I throw it in the wash, and, uh, and, and I, you know, uh, the next day I have pink underwear. Everything's pink, you know what I mean? Pink, you know, it, it, it just doesn't work for me. <laughs> But I get it. We bleed, you know, and die. And so often as humans, we look at our present and we bleed our present into the future. I will always have this struggle. I will always be this tired. <laughs> I will always dislike these people. I just have fought this and I just can't get it over. And, you know, it's just there. I'm always, and so I just look and hope I can hang on to the end of life without it killing me, right? But in fact, what hope does is bleed the future back into the present. And it takes the promises of God and says, this is who you're going to become, and therefore you can live that way now. And the promise of the new creation as a whole, and I know that this is a church that focuses a lot on the story of the gospel. And the end of the story of the gospel is the new creation and the new heaven and the new earth, right? But we also know, and I know you hear this, but I want to reemphasize it, that that's not just for then. We are new creation people now, right? Now. We have eternal life now. And so we bleed eternity back into the present and begin to live according to who we are, who we really are. And that's how hope operates for us. So it bleeds back. But there's another way it works, and it's kind of the opposite. Hope is like a winch line that pulls us through to the future. We fix on what will be, and it allows us to be pulled through it. Now, we used to live in Western Canada, right? And Western Canada is really good at a lot of things. It's good at beauty, it's good at great people, great culture, interesting history, and it's really, really, really good at winter, okay? And uh, so I, I just, uh, I mean, we just had lovely winter. Um, I actually like winter. <laughs> I'm kind of weird, but anyway. Um, the, uh, there are plenty of times uh, in Canada when we're up in the mountains and stuff because we live near the mountains, uh, when we would see people, uh, and even from time to time be people, <laughs> who got stuck, right, in the snow and the slush and the ice and off the side of the road or whatever. And uh, there is nothing that feels so good at that moment as somebody who was smart enough to have a winch on their truck, right, <laughs> coming along and saying, I'll help you. And to see that winch line hook onto your frame, and then the little hum of the motor, and then the line tightens up, and you begin to move out of the slush and the stuckness, okay? That's how hope works. It is like the winch line that's fixed, I and mean, the winch line that connects you with what's fixed. 
and it pulls you out. And so that's what hope does in our lives. It bleeds the future back into our reality today and changes our today reality and allows us to fix our hope on what will be. Did you notice that last phrase, by the way, that was read today out of 1 Peter? Set your hope on what will come. We'll read it in a few minutes again. Set your hope and fix it. Turn on the motor and let it pull you out because this is where you're headed. And that takes intelligence and mind and determination and engages you in the process, engages you in the process. So some general ideas, some general pictures, how hope works. And then I want to spend the last few minutes, and I won't, I won't belabor this, but I want to at least list some of the actual content of our hope out of 1 Peter. And if you have a Bible, it might be helpful for you to turn there simply because I'll be referencing some statements, giving you some verse references, and encouraging you to do some more reading. I, it's, I'm not going to hit this stuff in depth, okay? We, yeah, there's only so many words that you can absorb. But I do want to give you at least an outline of some of the things that Peter says. And I'll make four statements based on the text. The first statement is this. In Christ, we have the sure hope of a final and completed redemption. An eternal life from God and therefore of personal, eternal security. We are okay in Christ. We are okay. The security, of course, is centered in the resurrection. As I referenced by way of story before when I was talking about my friend Brandon in Africa, the worst Satan can do has been done and Christ shook it off like a dog shaking off water when he jits out of the lake. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Can Christ be fixing this more clearly? Unfading, unperishable, undefiled, fixed, kept in heaven for you? Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are born in hope if we are born in Christ. It's in the DNA. It's in your DNA. You have to work hard as a Christian to deny hope. Because you're working against your nature. If you believe in Jesus Christ, the risen one. The worst thing that could happen in history has already happened. There is no more worst thing. Do you realize that? Whatever you fear as the worst possible thing is not as bad as what has already happened. And Christ's response to what has already happened is the resurrection. So the center of human history is secure. The center of our humanity is secure. Christ has declared for us the intention that he has for all humanity. And those who have put their faith in Christ now receive as the gift, the fulfillment of the intention that God had from the beginning that we would live eternally with him. It's done. It's over. Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the promise. And we are made partakers of that in Jesus Christ. Memorize that concept. And I mean it. 
Hold on to it. Let the hope of eternal life and the absolute security that you have speak back against every fear you have. I'm a normal human being, and I have fears just like you do. In fact, in some ways, I wonder sometimes if I have more than normal because it's something that I've lived with all my life. Anxieties, fears, and issues. But those are not the defining reality of my life. Do you realize that? In Christ. That is not who I am. Because who I am has been settled in Jesus Christ. I am a participant in the new creation that Christ has given me. Jesus Christ came on a mission. Hebrews chapter 2 says that God's desire was to bring many sons and daughters to, to, to glory. He came to rescue us. He came on a rescue mission. And you know what? If I believe in Jesus Christ at all, then I, I would have to assume that he was probably fairly good at accomplishing his mission. So where am I headed? What is my security? What is my future? So again, to verse 13, preparing your minds for action, getting out in the world, being sober-minded, get your eyes open, be alert to the realities, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you in Jesus Christ. Now, in one sense, what God is saying to us is don't set your hope fully on getting everything solved now. Now, there is going to be a change in what I just said, but there is a, in a kind of a purity about it. Set your hope fully on what's going to happen to you so that you right-size the battle here. You will have battle. In this world, there will be many tribulations. Through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. That's true. We're humans. We live in a fallen and broken world, and we still are subject to that. But it is not the final reality nor the ultimate definition of our life or who we are. Set your hope fully on who you are. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you completely at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your soul in him. Look forward to the grace and Fear not, which is the most frequently command, repeated command in the entire scripture. Fear not. Do not be afraid. The second substance of our hope in Christ. We have the sure hope, and this is where I'm going to moderate what I just said. We have the sure hope of a changed identity and therefore of personal transformation as children of God in this life. So even though I've said to you, don't, don't get bent out of shape for the battle that you're in because you will have battle for the rest of your life, you also have the promise of being transformed into becoming more and more who you are. The work of the Holy Spirit is to transform you into the image of Christ. And if you look at verse 14, Peter brings that home. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now when I read that passage, and I read it for years and years, I read it primarily as a command. Be holy. And there is a command to be holy. We do have choices to make, right? We have choices in every temptation we face. And we can choose holiness. But do you realize there's also a magnificent promise? You shall be holy. Jesus, according to Colossians chapter 1, has the goal of presenting us blameless and holy before God. Jesus' intent is that you will complete your journey and be made fully holy in the end. 
So the beauty of this, the struggle that you have with unbelief or with doubt or with temptation, that is not your forever story. And in fact, it doesn't have to be your forever story even in this life. Not that you will ever be fully complete because it says we will only be completely in the image of Christ when we see him face to face. So we're on a journey and we will continue to have battles throughout our life, but it, the battles that we face can literally yield and be transformed progressively into the image of Christ. And that's the promise that we have in the Christian life of increasing Christ-likeness, increasing holiness by the power of the Spirit. So we bear within our souls the memory of our failures, the accusations and reminders of our past shame and failure. We know uh, what goes on inside of us. We feel the welling up of anger. We feel the judgmentalism. We're saddened and, and really disheartened by the things that actually tempt us. Or is that just me? I, I can't believe some of the things that I'm actually attracted to do. It is offensive to my mind, but I'm still attracted. I'm horrified, and yet it's interesting. And that's just incredible to me. I feel stuck in the battle. But we have a different hope. We shall be holy. Therefore, we can live holy lives now. It's because of the promise of holiness that we have the capacity for holiness. Do you realize that? It's because of the promise of it that God says, I will make you have holy, that we have the capacity to live it now because we're not slugging this out on our own. I can ask God every moment for the capacity that I do not have within myself to become the child that he's meant me to be. What a great promise of hope. The hope of transformation. So we have the hope of a sure future. We have the hope of transformation. We can live in accordance with who we are. You can read the text all the way down to verse 21. And then the third hope is this. We have the hope of a true family in God. The hope of not living alone. Of connection with people who understand us and support us and love us and help us along the way. Verse 22, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Love one another. Verse 1, chapter 2, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow into salvation. As you come to him, verse for as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and that you is not singular, it's plural, as you all come to him, you all are being built up as a spiritual house. When do you all come to Jesus? When do you all literally physically come to Jesus? Where? Come on, say it. At the table. The climax of our worship is all of us coming together to Jesus. And as you come, you're being built together. You're being changed in family. You're being changed together. And there's a dynamic and a beauty that's happening that you don't even know. There is a mystery, a sacramental ministry in the formation of you into a spiritual house. It's an amazing, amazing reality. Let me read a quote to you. Uh, I have a friend who uh, 
had a guy in this church, an older guy, and he was really struggling with the idea of weekly communion, and he was saying, um, yeah, it just feels like it's going to get boring after a while. And uh, the guy said, trust me, just give it a shot. <laughs> give, it, give, it, give it a year and see, see how you feel. See how you feel. And about six months into it, the, the elder guy came to, to, to my pastor friend, and he goes, well, it's working. <laughs> what do you mean it's working? He said, well, he said, it's, change. I'm change. it's changing. He said, come on, come on, you got to tell me. He said, well, let me write you. Let me write you what I mean. So this is his email to my pastor friend. It's complicated. First, almost every Sunday sitting where I do, as people go to the table, I can look forward or across and see men and women I know, people who are suffering, carrying burdens, visible or invisible, and I can silently pray for them as I know some of them do for me. Other mornings, I am desperate, hoping that there will be some magic in the cup, willing to crawl on my knees to the table just in case. Or the sermon preached, just preached, may have overwhelmed me with guilt or gratitude, parenthesis, it happens. <laughs> and this is a tangible way to say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. Or to be reminded that we're one in the Lord, these folks that I revere and those that I secretly shake my head at from a great height. All belong to Christ and not to me. His blood covers them just as effectively as it does me. Gentile or Jew, free, free, free or slave, fit or fat, MD or welfare mother. Each week the world erases that from the blackboard of my heart. Each week at the table, Christ patiently writes it back. Isn't that great? And I'm old. I now read the obituaries every day and too often there's a colleague my latest son is sinking fast, and my race is nearly run, and I cringe at what lies ahead, and I fear the darkness. But each and every Sunday I hear, stretching all the way back to my childhood, the voice of the pastor, the words of the, the Word, capital W, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pastor, it matters. And then his next line was, I'm sorry I couldn't say it better. <laughs> We have the hope of being made family. And finally, we have the hope of meaning and purpose in our lives, a message to declare the most important message in the world. Verse 9 of chapter 2, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You and I, brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ, are the people of mercy. And we are here to declaim, proclaim the excellencies of God and to declare his mercy. I don't know if you noticed in your liturgy today, but I went back and circled it. In the confession of sin, uh, let us come draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. The assurance of forgiveness. Almighty God, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins. We turn to the call of the day. Grant us the fullness of your grace. Excuse me. Your almighty power chiefly rests in showing mercy and pity. The call of the day. Later on, we're going to pray the prayer of humble access. O merciful Lord, we don't trust our righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. Middle of the prayer. But you are the same Lord who always delights in showing mercy. Mercy. The mercy of God. In other words, the grace of God made personal to you 
in the context of your insanity. You're a person of mercy. And God is a God of mercy. And the world needs mercy, does it not? It needs release from its burdens and its sin. Now, if you want to push that point of the testimony, read the rest of the book. Peter was writing, filled with hope to a people who were living in a world as exiles. Nero was on the throne. Persecution was erupting throughout the Roman Empire. And you'll see that Christians were living with political injustice. Uh, if you read the rest of the letter, they were being mistreated in the workplace. There were wives who were living with unbelieving husbands who were mocking them and followers of Christ who were being openly reviled by their neighbors as atheists and cannibals and incestuous perverts. The church was seen as a threat to society. It was standing in the way of progress. Those are tones that I actually begin, am beginning to hear in our culture, by the way, about us. Standing in the way of progress, the enemies of society. Yet this entire letter is written to underscore the substance of our hope and therefore to urge this people and us to live as people of hope in this world declaring the mercy of God. And I'm not going to read and reread that passage in chapter, uh, Jeremiah 29, but it, it, it's much like the Jews in exile in Jeremiah 29. You ought to reread it simply for one or two phrases. One of them is he said, I've sent you there. <laughs> this is not a mistake. He says, after 70 years are accomplished, and the next word is extremely important, for Babylon. This is for them that I've sent you. It's for, the, it's for them. It's for them. And then he says at the end, that verse we often quote, I have plans. Remember, I have plans to give you a future and a hope. Hope. Dear friends, do not try to come up with hopeful thoughts or feelings. Hold on to the word of God. They are, they are the words of hope. Believe what God says about you and about your future. And then, according to Jeremiah, do hopeful things in the world. Do hopeful things. Plant gardens. Get married. Have kids. Pray for the city. Do hopeful things. Lord, thank you that you have made us and called us to be people of hope. We love you. And we are grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.